Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we are here today with my birthday movie. (laughs) It is your birthday movie. A little historical moment. We all know you love those. I was at first a little bit upset that I didn't think to do Pride and Prejudice and Zombies for this, (laughs) but there's always next year. And I think doing this movie actually ended up being kind of cool. We have some cool things to talk about today. Yeah, we're here with 2012's Woman in Black. And this is, I think, one of the last of the movies that I had seen before this podcast ever happened. Was it Daniel Radcliffe or was it the historical moment that it was? What was it that got you to watch this before you had to? My brother and my cousin, Margaret. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted to watch this movie and I couldn't say no. But I will say, I don't think I watched as much of it as I did hear what was happening behind my hands and pillows and blankets. Which is so interesting because this movie is so tame in comparison to a lot of the shit that we've watched so far. I still thought it was really scary. Who's surprised? (laughs) There's something about ghosts. And again, we talked a little bit about this during the Halloween season when we had that supernatural theme going on. And I realized I hate the suspense of it, waiting for the ghost to pop out, looking at the empty space, wondering if there's going to be a face that shows up in the window, all that kind of shit, it gets to me. And all that happened in this movie. All of it. (laughs) (laughs) It does not let up. So let's talk about it. Despite being called The Woman in Black, The Woman in Black doesn't really have that much to do with this movie, but we're still going to talk about it and it'll make sense. And we'll start with who plays The Woman in Black, aka Jeanette Humphrey. She is played by English actress Elizabeth White. And Elizabeth White is in a lot of other things, television and theatrical productions. And the other woman who plays a moderate role in the film is Jeanette McTeer as Elizabeth Daly. Sam Daly, her husband, plays a larger role, and we'll talk about him eventually. But Janet McTeer, she's in The Menu. Oh, really? Yes, which we have thought about covering once or twice. And she's also in several other things like Ozark. If you Googled a picture of her face, you'd probably recognize her from something along the line. I will say that I'm glad that a creepy veiled woman is actually played by a woman. What an idea. What a concept. Because we've discussed that like a lot. So let's get into some pre-plot trivia. So this film is directed by James Watkins. He has directed other films, but this one seems to be his most popular. This is written by Susan Hill and Jane Goldman. And Susan Hill actually wrote the 1983 novel, which was later adapted into a 1987 play, which was then later adapted into a 1989 film. And that's how we got here in 2012. Fun fact, I actually saw this play. Did you? Yes. When I was in high school, if you were a senior taking drama four, you had to put on a one act production. And there were these two guys who were like, let's put on a whole production. (laughs) And they did Woman in Black. I don't remember much about it, but I remember being deathly scared. I can't tell you why. Probably because I am easily frightened. That was actually easier than I thought. (laughs) But But the coolest thing about this play was when it was time for Curtain Call, the person who played the woman in black did not come out for Curtain Call. Oh, that's so creepy. Isn't that? I just got chills thinking about it. And she was not in the program. It was like as if she did not exist. And it created the most unsettling feeling ever. That is such a smart directorial decision on their part. It makes me wonder if it's something that had been done before, or if they thought of it on their own. I never thought to ask. I was too scared. (laughs) Well, it reminds me of the Suspiria remake. 
they didn't reveal that Tilda Swinton was Dr. Joseph. And they were like, oh, he couldn't make the premiere. I don't think that came out until after its premiere that he wasn't actually a real person. How experimental. I know. I love it. I love it too. So should we get into this very depressing movie? (laughs) Let's get on with this bummer. (laughs) So we open with a tea party for creepy dolls with some creepy girls. Mm -hmm. We have these three young girls playing with a tea set with a lot of different dolls with a lot of different creepy faces. And then we see all three of the girls look to something in the doorway and fall silent, perhaps a little bit scared. And then they all collectively rise and in seemingly tranced walk toward a window. And you can tell they're in a trance because they're stepping on their dolls, they're stepping on their teacups, they don't seem to really realize what they're doing. And this window is a large window with three panels that open up like doors. So all three of them step up to a respective panel, open the panel, and walk out, bawling presumably to their deaths. And this is confirmed from the sound of a woman screaming, my babies, my babies, presumably their mother. And then we get a panning shot back into the room that reveals a woman in a black veil looking at the empty windows. Yeah. (laughs) Cue opening credits. We have some establishing shots. This whole movie is very gray and misty, and the opening credits do that justice. And then we eventually settle on Arthur Kipps, who is, of course, played by Daniel Radcliffe. I literally said Arthur Kipps is what Harry Potter would have done if he didn't get his Hogwarts acceptance letter. (laughs) This is like the role he would have taken as this lawyer assistant in London. And actually, piece of trivia, and probably partially because it has to do with Daniel Radcliffe, this was the biggest grossing British horror film in 20 years when it was released. Yeah. Everyone was ready to see Daniel in this role. And that's the thing. Everyone associates him, obviously, with Harry Potter, because I don't think that you can separate them at this point. But everything that Daniel Radcliffe does has been so awesome and experimental. Like, he's in a movie Imperium that I like a lot. He's in a movie called Horns I like a lot. Swiss Army Man. Like, he does some really cool stuff. And I think his career with Harry Potter has allowed him to really carefully choose the projects that he can work on, because obviously, I don't think he's hurting for (laughs) livelihood (laughs) ever, probably. (laughs) Probably, but he's a really good actor, almost in the same way that Robert Pattinson Mm. is because he had Twilight. Mm -hmm. But if you look at some of like the other roles he's gotten to do and like the diversity within them, like he's such a fucking good actor. And I think Daniel Radcliffe's a lot better of an actor than people give him credit for outside of his work in Harry Potter. I think he does a great job in this movie. His face is so good for this era because it's like 1906, turn of the century. He looks like he belongs in this time. Absolutely. So anyway, he's playing Arthur Kipps. We settle on him looking at his reflection in the mirror as he holds a razor to his throat. He has just finished shaving and we're getting the sense after seeing some images of a woman in white, presumably his wife on their wedding day, kind of fade away. We see a depressed Arthur. We're getting the sense that something very, very bad has happened. Arthur is very unhappy. He hears a woman whisper his name. We see that same woman in the reflection, the woman in white. He turns to see her and finds no one is there. So in very Victorian fashion, there is a gorgeous woman who has died. At least one. He moves out into the hallway where he greets the nanny and his little boy. The little boy shows his dad a picture that he has drawn with mommy in heaven, dad and the nanny on the ground. And Arthur is like, why do I look so sad? And the little boy's like, that's what your face looks like. (laughs) I giggled at this. (laughs) 
me too. <laughs> What's the little boy's name again? Joseph. Joseph. Okay. Dad heads out to work after communicating with the nanny. There's going to be some kind of traveling that's going on by the end of the week. The nanny's like, I know what to do. I know where to be. Arthur heads out. He meets up with his boss and he is instructed to visit a town called Carithian Gifford to retrieve documents that are left behind at an old estate owned by the former Alice Drablo, who is now deceased, of course, who was the owner of Eel Marsh House. Such creepy settings. Such creepy names. <laughs> Drablo? Eel Marsh? Grith, what, what is the name of the town again? Carithian Gifford. Oh my God. <laughs> of course it is. It sounds like Gizzard, which is why it makes me laugh a little bit. It reminds me of Gryffindor, which mm. obviously. <laughs> yeah. His boss informs him that she had a son that died young, and he is going to be tasked with going through Mrs. Drablo's documents to find her will so they can settle her estate. And it's clear that his boss has been very patient with Arthur over the death of his wife, Stella. But his boss says this is his final warning, essentially to get his shit together, that he can prove that he can be a fellow in this law firm, that they're not a charity, that he needs to put in the work, and this is going to be the test as to whether he can keep keep his job or not. So Arthur takes a train to the countryside. We get flashbacks to his son Joseph's birth. There's Stella screaming. He's pacing outside in the hallway as the doctors work on her. But it is eventually revealed that his wife died during childbirth. And he wakes from this flashback on the train across from a Sam Daly. Sam Daly is a wealthy businessman. It's clear that he's taken a peek at Arthur's documents as he was asleep and tells him that he won't find a local buyer for the Eel Marsh house, but offers him a ride to his hotel and then offers him to dinner the next night. He seems like a very welcoming man, kind of person I want to meet on public transit. Yeah, good vibes from Sam. How would you describe it? Because it's not a hotel. An inn. An inn. Oh, you know it's an inn. It's an inn. <laughs> Arthur says he's supposed to have a room, but the locals seem very not interested in housing him, perhaps because he's an outsider, perhaps because they know what he's here for, but a chambermaid? I think it's the inn owner's wife. I think that they co-own it together. I couldn't tell if it was his wife or his daughter. I think it's his wife. All right. So the inn owner's wife is like, oh, well, it's raining outside. Let's just put him in the attic. So Arthur is in his room for the night. He says goodnight to a photo of his wife in his pocket watch and looks around the room to see creepy dolls and the window mm -hmm. from the cold open. He is in that same room. The room. This movie doesn't leave you feeling safe for long. The next morning, Arthur meets Mr. Jerome. I don't really know what his job is, but he's the contact in Carithian Gifford that Arthur is supposed to meet with before going to the house to essentially look through the paperwork, try to sell off the property, etc. Yeah, I don't know what he is, but no. he has been- Like a lawyer, maybe? I think probably the town lawyer. Yeah. The only lawyer <laughs> yeah. in the town. There is one constable. There is one lawyer. Yeah. There is one in. That is it. <laughs> and Mr. Jerome very clearly tries to get Arthur out of there. He's like, you know what? You don't actually need to be here. Let's just get you out of here on the next train. No phone, no telegrams. Sorry, you should probably just leave. And he gives Arthur's driver money to get him out of there. But Arthur pays the driver to actually take him to Eel Marsh House. And the driver agrees. And the house is very, very spooky. 
And probably the coolest and spookiest part about the house is that there is a single road that leads to the house through the marsh. And when the tide rises, the road disappears. So there are certain times of day and night where the house simply cannot be accessed. So the buggy travels through this very long and windy road and says that he'll be back for him at five just due to the tide. So Arthur approaches the house. There's a lot of overgrown greenery, but then we get a POV shot of someone watching him from the window as he enters. So he is not alone. This is uh, my first episode of I Want This House, but it looks like a maintenance nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Because this house is really cool, but yeah, it's pretty fucked up. He sits at a table, finds a bunch of birthday cards, and a death certificate for a seven-year-old boy who died in the marsh, Alice Drablo's supposed son. Also, the death certificate says the body was never recovered. Yes, because he drowned in the marsh. Oof. So he hears some thudding upstairs, goes exploring. There's a crow jump scare. There's a lot of him wandering around and exploring and jump scares happening. I feel like that takes up a lot of the time of this film. And of course, we know crows mean bad news. So Arthur goes to open the window to let out the crow, but then sees a woman in black standing in the tree line near a bunch of graves on the property. So he goes outside to investigate. It's very foggy and he hears a woman screaming, a horse carriage crashing, a child screaming, and he's like wandering through the marsh trying to help, thinking that he's heard an accident, but nobody's there. Although we do see flashes of a woman, child, and buggy driver sinking into the marsh with their horse. So we know this is in fact happening, whether it was now or before, we don't Mm -hmm. know. But then we get a jump scare from the buggy driver who is back to pick him up. He takes Arthur back to the town and Arthur immediately tries to alert the constable, the only man in the law in this place. (laughs) Like, hey, I heard an accident happening on the causeway. Like, you might want to check it out. The constable dismisses his claims. And shortly after the constable leaves the room to, I don't know what he goes to do, look at paperwork or something. Well, once Arthur mentions that there was a woman Mm. at the house, he's like, excuse me for a moment. And you can tell he's disturbed. So it's like, okay, there's a lore here that we're not learning about just yet. Right after the constable steps out, two children enter with their sister, who we hear her name is Victoria, propped up in their arms. The boys are asking for help. They're saying that Victoria has ingested lye, which is poisonous. And before Arthur can get help, Victoria starts spitting up blood and collapses dead in his arms. As news of this spreads around the town, people are starting to blame Arthur. Arthur goes back to the inn and him and the inn owner's wife have a drink together and she begs him not to go back to Eel Marsh House, instead to go back home to see his son, but he claims, I can't leave yet, I have a job to do, I need to provide for him. So that night, Arthur joins Sam for dinner. He finds Sam bidding his son goodnight, his son Nicholas, Nicholas's grave. So, oh, yeah. well, like, what would you call it? It's like a tomb. It's like a mausoleum. <laughs> because it's not like a grave. It's an actual like structure. Yeah, it's a plot. I'm pretty sure it's called a mausoleum. But it's something that Sam mentions, like there's a spot for me and my wife. Nicholas is in there and we'll all be buried together. Sam then asks Arthur to avoid the subject of the previous day's events with Victoria and the subject of kids all together with his wife. So as they're sitting at the table for dinner, his wife Elizabeth says, oh, the twins are going to be joining us for dinner. And we think that they're going to be like children. (laughs) They're chihuahuas. (laughs) Or I don't know, like some other small talk. That's so funny. I mean, I feel like Elizabeth's attitude toward her dogs was really ahead of her time. 
Yes, they have bibs. They have high chairs. Uh huh. I heard this thing before, like plants are the new pets and pets are the new children. Look, I get it. (laughs) But anyway, dogs are cool. Everyone is eating dinner. And then Elizabeth starts asking questions and she asks Arthur if he has any kids. He says, yes, a son. Very shortly after that, even though she initiated the conversation, she seems to become possessed. She says that they lost their son to a drowning, and then she seems overtaken by some kind of force. After saying her son liked to draw, he still does. He wants to draw you a picture. She starts carving on the table with a knife, which I thought this was very spooky. I think this was the best scene of the movie. For I me. agree. For it me. was so unexpected, yeah. especially seeing this woman going from I'm mothering these chihuahuas to I'm going to show you a picture that my son is <laughs> like it was and it happens so fast. So she begins carving on the table. Her husband immediately leaps into action. He gets the workers around the house because they live in this huge estate. So he gets like the butler or whoever is around working to help subdue this woman with medicine. She is subdued. She's taken away. We don't see what the picture is just yet, but Sam and Arthur sit in Sam's study and have a conversation. Sam tells Arthur that Elizabeth has become convinced that Nicholas can speak through her and asks if he believes in the spiritual. Arthur says that since his wife Stella died, he isn't so sure that he can feel her reaching for him sometimes. Sam says that opening the door to superstition is a game of chasing shadows. We don't stay here, we go up there, in the sense that he doesn't really believe in ghosts, he doesn't believe that an essence can stay behind, but Arthur seems to. Now, Arthur is going to be staying with them because it's very obvious that the inn does not want his company. So he is going back downstairs looking for his pocket wash that he left in his jacket because he wants to be able to say goodbye to his wife or Mm. goodnight to his wife. Oh, it's so fucking sad. And he goes wandering the house. As he is going back upstairs, he passes through the dining room to see what Elizabeth carved onto the table. And it is a picture of a figure hanging by its neck. Very spooky. I also wanted to say the conversation between Sam and Arthur is interesting because they mentioned spiritualism, which became really popular after the Civil War. With so much death, people were very upset and became really interested in ways to stay connected with their loved ones. So I just thought historically that was cool that they brought that up and that this comes into the story. And also this idea of what happens after humans die. Do we stay here? Do we go somewhere else? Because that comes into play later in the movie. The next morning, Arthur returns to Jerome's office, and Jerome isn't around at first. As he peeks his head inside, he discovers Jerome has a young daughter who is locked in the basement. Casual. Casual. And I mean, look, it's a big basement. She's got a good setup down there. I feel like a lot of kids these days would prefer that setup. I certainly would. Yeah. But she is very angry to see Arthur. She does not want to have anything to do with him. She tells him that he killed that young girl previously and he needs to get away. Sam goes to then drive Arthur to Eel Marsh House, but there is a bunch of men blocking the path. As we know, there is one way in and one way out. So if you can't go through that road, you're not getting there. Victoria's father, the girl who died earlier in the film, says that Arthur had to have seen that woman, and that's why all of this is happening. Sam calls it all superstitious rubbish, and another man counters, if it's superstitious rubbish, that's what killed your boy then. Oh shit. Mm. It seems like there's like a lot of kids dying. What the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. Sam does a fake out to get them by all of the men in the road, and they proceed on to the house. Arthur says he's going to work through the night, so Sam tells him to take the dog Spider for company, but looks a little worried about him staying there all night by himself. I also love animals that are named after other animals. (laughs) 
like a dog named Spider is so funny to me. And I really appreciate it. It's a little Jack <laughs> Russell. I don't think he would do much for company, but he's very cute. Back at the house, Arthur is doing some more exploring. He notices that there's a locked room that he can't get inside of, but he leaves that behind in pursuit of more documents. He uncovers a box of papers. And then there's a moment where he hears noises coming from the bathroom. He goes to look. Nothing is there. I wrote bathroom scare. Do you remember specifically what happened there? There's just like noises. I think like he drops a scroll on the ground. And as he's looking under the bed, he can still see that there is part of a glass door above a door. Mm -hmm. And he sees that there's a handprint there and a face pops out or something like that. Yes. It's very much like the orphan house where there's a lot of doors that you can see through into other parts of the house. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Also, the clock is stopped at three. I didn't even notice that. We know that that's a very, very spooky time. He starts looking through even more papers because that's what he's there to do, but he gets distracted again. He ventures outside and finds Nathaniel's grave, which is a huge grave, like a monument. Was it Nathaniel's grave or Jeanette's grave? Well, he finds Nathaniel's grave first. Well, I guess it's not a grave because his body wasn't recovered, but it's a monument to his memory. Got it. But then he turns and sees a grave for Jeanette. And he's like, who's this woman? And it says on the tombstone, Alice Drablo's sister, beloved, always will be loved, etc. While he's heading back toward the house, he sees a spooky woman in the upstairs window looking down at him. A lot of this gave me conjuring energy. Yeah. Like even earlier in this scene, there's him looking through a spinny thing. Like remember the music box from The Conjuring where like the face pops up from behind? It's like one of those flip drawings where it's like you run your finger through it and it's a drawing that changes based on the numbers of papers that are in there. I don't know. It's like a spinny thing and he sees like a spooky face in the spinny thing. But Arthur then uncovers letters of Jeanette writing to Alice, and through these letters, it's revealed that Nathaniel is Jeanette's son, and that Alice took custody of him after Jeanette was deemed unfit to raise him due to mental health concerns. After Nathaniel died in the marsh, Jeanette blames Alice for his death, tells her that she'll never forgive her, and wants her to rot in hell. And then as Arthur continues looking through the documents, he finds a death certificate for Jeanette that reveals that Jeanette hung herself in the Eel Marsh nursery soon after Nathaniel's death. Then we see a spooky woman walking in the door to find Arthur. So putting the pieces together, the woman in black is supposedly Jeanette Humphrey, whose son died in the marsh. And she blames her sister, Alice, who lived in the house. But now Alice is also dead. So after finding out all of this hot tea, Arthur drifts off to sleep. Which is like, how? But he does. And he wakes up hearing noises coming from some other part of the house. And he sees that the old photos of Alice Drablo, her husband, and the boy, the eyes of Alice Drablo and her husband are all scratched out, which had happened while he was sleeping. Again, more sounds coming from the house. He follows the sound upstairs. It's the sound of a rocking chair, it sounds like. And as he gets closer and closer, it quickens and becomes more louder as he draws near to the nursery. But he can't get inside that room. It is locked. He runs downstairs, grabs an axe, comes back upstairs, and finds the door open. And there's a really good shot of the rocking chair rocking violently where there's nobody in it and then there's somebody in it and then there's not. It's a good scene. It's not just a casual rocking. It is violently rocking. Like if it were to be pushed anymore, it would topple over. I mean, again, think of the conjuring where the chair flies into the door. Very much so. Yes. He approaches it and it stops. As he looks around the room, he notices something funny about the wall. He peels back some wallpaper, revealing a message in blood that says, you should have saved him. 
There's a bunch of toy jump scares, toys turning on that shouldn't be on. So he looks outside to see something coming out of the marsh and walking towards the house. Hmm. He sees another handprint on the window, puts his hand up to the handprint and sees his reflection turn into Alice's reflection screaming. So he then hears Spider barking at the door downstairs. I also feel so funny because Spider is the name of that shirtless guy in School of Rock. Like that is in my mind whenever I hear of anything named Spider is that man with the leather sleeves. Anyway. So he goes outside to investigate and sees a bunch of dead kids standing in the tree line. Oh, God. He retreats back inside and sees footprints on the ground leading up the stairs. So he follows the footprints into a room where he hears a music box playing and toys whirring inside. He sees a child running amok and a woman hanging herself from the ceiling and the chair rocking violently again. So, okay, this is telling the story of perhaps how Jeanette killed herself The ghost is perhaps of Nathaniel. There is a muddy child jump scare and a woman in black standing at the end of a hallway. So there's just a lot of spooky shit popping up all at once. And as he runs away from this scene, he sees that Sam has arrived, the morning has come, and he is off back to the village. Sam believes that Arthur's mind was playing tricks on him. And as they enter the town, they discover that a fire has broken out. Parents are being dragged away from the house as they reveal that their daughter Lucy is still inside. So Arthur, feeling very much like a hero, runs inside after Lucy, crashes through a door to find Lucy with a lantern in her hands, looking at the woman in black standing in the corner. So what we're surmising from this is that the woman in black shows up and compels all these children to kill themselves. And this is Mr. Jerome's house, so we know that Lucy lived in the basement, so it wasn't as easily accessible. Now she's holding this lantern, which, after looking at the woman in black, she drops and sets herself on fire with. And this is not good for Arthur's relationship with the other town members. They're furious with him. And obviously, this is a very sad, tragic event. Later, Arthur goes back to where he's staying with Sam and Elizabeth, and he finds Elizabeth standing at her son's mausoleum. And... (laughs) I wrote, there's a part where Daniel Radcliffe says the line, I don't understand. Have you ever heard me imitate the line that Daniel Radcliffe says in Harry Potter when he says, <laughs> wait, Mr. Filch, you don't understand. Have you ever heard me no, say that? I don't know. There's a part. I don't understand. There's a part yeah. in the second Harry Potter movie that for some reason has always felt so jarring to me. Daniel Radcliffe says, wait, Mr. Filch, you don't understand. But for some reason, the way he says it feels so unnatural and strange. It's like not in his usual cadence. And hearing Daniel Radcliffe say, I don't understand in this movie made me laugh so hard. You think it's a Daniel Radcliffe-ism? I do. I mean, it sounded much more normal in this movie. It sounded like it made sense with the flow of his rhythm. But in the Harry Potter movie, (laughs) it just feels so choppy and strange. Anyway, I loved it. It's like they took the parts of each good take and just like (laughs) stitched it together. (laughs) But Elizabeth starts talking more about her son. She tells Arthur that, again, reaffirming the woman in black is Jeanette. She basically kills the village children by having them take their own lives as payback for her son being taken from her. Yeah, she has a lot of creepy dialogue. Yeah. She says, whenever she's been seen, however briefly and whoever by, there has always been one sure and certain result. In some violent or dreadful circumstance, a child has died. 
so many children, the Fisher's daughters, and Jerome's eldest, Keckwick's son, my son. And then her voice gets really fucking distorted. Um, It's a two-tone voice moment. And you can tell through this moment that she's channeling Nicholas. She makes us do it. They took her boy away, so now she makes us. She saw you. She saw you. She's coming. She's coming. And then Elizabeth picks up a stone and begins scrawling on the wall of the mausoleum with a rock. Then again, Sam comes in to stop her, to take her away. But Arthur is able to see that the drawing that Elizabeth has made was Joseph's drawing from the beginning of the film with his mom in heaven, his sad dad, and himself, which is telling Arthur that the woman in black is coming after Joseph. And also, Arthur remembers that Joseph is coming the next day to Corinthian Gifford. Or is it that night? Oh, is it that night? I think it's that night. He is coming tonight <laughs> to Corinthian Gifford, England's favorite vacation spot. So let's go. Yeah. Is it real? Let's get our asses <laughs> to Corinthian Gifford. Sit at a pub. Stay at an inn. Stay at the inn. The only inn. The singular inn. Let's stay in the attic. <laughs> yeah. <Ooh. laughs> mm, I can't play this game anymore. I'm too scared. So Sam, ever the kind stranger now turned friend that he is, tries to drive Arthur to the telegraph store. (laughs) I was so confused as to where they were going. Is this in town, out of town, the next town? I don't know. So it's in town. I know there was probably one telegraph in this town and I don't know where they keep it. Where would you keep a telegraph? I feel like the post office would be like a logical place unless there was like a telegraph room. I feel like they rolled up on Mr. Jerome's house forgetting that Mr. Jerome's house was set on fire the previous day. It was the telegraph house and it was also burned. How silly of me. I don't think it's very silly of you because maybe I'm wrong because I was confused why that would be on fire and nobody was talking about it. Either way, there is no messages coming in. There are no (laughs) messages going out. Correct. There is no way of stopping Joseph and the nanny from coming that night. So instead, Arthur surmises if they can reunite Nathaniel with Jeanette, maybe she'll stop. Maybe she'll chill the fuck out for a second. Mm -hmm. So as night falls, they return to the Ilmarsh house and Arthur ties himself to a rope, which is also tied to Sam's car and goes digging through the marsh toward Nathaniel's grave site, which again is in the middle of the marsh, but this is different from his memorial. It's like a wooden cross stuck in the marsh. Yes, but Mm -hmm. it is approximately where the carriage went under. I don't know that I would ever want anything enough to do what Daniel Radcliffe is doing right now. No. I don't think that any job is worth doing what Daniel Radcliffe is doing right now. It looks practical to me. Like, they are diving in a marsh, and a marsh is not water. It is mud and water. Well, it's practical to me up until the point Daniel Radcliffe finds what he's looking for. I'm thinking it's a body. When I say practical, I don't mean (laughs) useful. I mean the fact that Daniel Radcliffe as an actor is traversing this kind of environment. That makes sense. Like practical effects. Practical effects. Yeah, I agree. It has to be real. Yeah, but again, is any paycheck worth doing that? Yeah. Okay, maybe it is. <laughs> as long as somebody went in there first to make sure it was safe, I would do it. We're teachers. What the fuck are we about? <laughs> we would do a lot. We would do a lot Listen. more for less. <laughs> it's in our blood. <laughs> yeah, this other part isn't practical, like logically. 
we think that he just finds the body. But as he goes under once more and Sam starts to back up the car, we realize that Arthur has tied his rope no longer to himself, but to the whole fucking carriage that now is trying to be exhumed from the marsh with presumably the body in it and all. And Sam is trying his best with all of his horsepower with his car, but that's a lot to ask. This is a buggy, like you said. It's 1906. Don't get it twisted. It's 1906. And obviously this car can only pull so much of the carriage out of the muck before the engine starts overheating and the carriage starts returning to the muck. But luckily Arthur is able to find the boy's body and get it out of the marsh and onto the road. So then we see Arthur cleaning up. He goes into the nursery room, turns on all of the toys and puts the dead body in the nursery's bed to lure the woman in black back. I'm a little bit confused because this accident happened 25 years previously. And also 25 feet from Jeanette's grave. So why are you bringing it all the way up to the nursery? I don't know. Is it because that's where she has the most domain? Is that nursery because that's where she died? Maybe. Maybe that's where most of the activity was in the house. I could see that. But are we supposed to assume that the marsh had some kind of like mummifying effect on this kid? Like it doesn't look like he's been dead for as long as he has been. Yeah, it's some sort of preservatives are in the mud, I guess. Maybe. That actually does happen. Like if the temperature is really cool. Well, I was about to say, I mean, like people do like mud cleanses. Think about fucking invasion of the body snatchers with the mud baths. It's supposed to be good for your skin, I guess. So maybe (sighs) he's just completely preserved. He's snatched. That was too much. (laughs) (laughs) That boy is snatched. He is. He discovered the secret before we knew we were looking for the secret. Exactly. Oh, what a waste. But yes, so the woman in black is lured into the room. I don't really understand what happens in this scene. She's in the room. She starts screaming in the direction of Arthur. Then she glides across the floor toward the dead body and then disappears. The only legitimate scare in this movie. I mean, obviously, like the wood carving scene was great. But this screaming jump scare was like the only, ooh, good job. But like other than that, I was like, eh. Wow, I thought everything was scary. Well, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) What else is new? It's good when we're different. Um, (laughs) Um, But then, yeah, she's gone. And I guess Arthur takes this as a sign that she has been pacified. So then Arthur and Sam place Nathaniel's body in Jeanette's grave. But then as they're back in the house, her voice is whispering throughout the halls that she'll never forgive. She'll never forgive. I don't think Arthur and Sam hear that because they are too busy at the train station meeting Joseph and the nanny as they arrive to the countryside. They embrace and Arthur's like to the nanny, we're going right back to London. Don't ask me any questions. Go buy three tickets. And she's like, heard. I'm going to do that. He is holding his son Joseph's hand as Sam's like, I'm so happy this happened for you. We are best friends now. Please give me a bro hug. And that happens. (laughs) But as this is happening, Joseph looks around and we see him see something and he starts walking toward the tracks and we're like, oh, fuck no. As Arthur turns, he sees the woman in black across the tracks and Joseph is now on the train tracks walking toward a train that is rushing toward them at full speed. Arthur leaps into action. He runs onto the tracks, scoops up his son, and tries to make it back up onto the landing. But the train hits. We see Sam's horrified face as he looks through the windows of the very quickly passing train. And he sees all of the dead town children materialize on the other side of the train. When the train is done passing, he looks down at the tracks and we can see a look of horror pass his face. But then the camera pans to Arthur and Joseph. 
they're all in one piece. They seem fine, but I will say the lighting has changed. Arthur looks around. He doesn't see Sam anymore. He doesn't see anybody. Then he hears his son say, Daddy, who's that woman? And he turns around and sees Stella on the tracks in her gorgeous white wedding gown. She holds out her hand to the two boys and they walk happily down the tracks together, reunited once again, as we see the woman in black looking on. And that's the movie. How joyful. Such a bummer. But it's also cute because they get reunited, but still like, what the fuck? Yeah, I can't believe after all that they die. But I do have some post-plot stuff. Tell me. Lots of things to kind of get through, but the first place I'm going to start is an article by Marta Mikel Baldeu titled, As Soon As She Died, The Hauntings Began, Revisiting the Victorian Fallen Woman as a Gothic Archetype in Susan Hill's The Woman in Black. I love academia. Me I too. I love the titles. Go Me on. Too. And I will say, I told this to Shay before we started recording, but most of the stuff I found about this movie was rooted in the book. So we're going to do a little bit of reverse engineering where we start with the book and then kind of work our way into the movie and talking about the movie and what it could mean, etc. So this is focusing on the book. And from what I understand, the book and the movie are very similar. So Mikkel writes in her abstract, quote, in the perspective of neo-Victorian studies, which according to me is just new Victorian studies, it can be claimed that the character of the woman in black in Susan Hill's novel published in 1983 is based on Victorian portrayals of the myth of the fallen woman. These Victorian representations often highlight my themes. Have you ever heard of my themes? I have not. They're like smaller themes pertaining to gothic archetypes such as the ghost, the vampire, the mad woman, and the witch. Hill's reinterpretation of the myth of the fallen woman recaptures gothic my themes pervading Victorian representations, but in contrast with most of these Victorian portrayals, the woman in black arises as an actual gothic archetype insofar as she is a female ghost who is brought back to life to vindicate herself and perpetuate her haunting existence. So in other words, the essay itself focuses on the central fear of the woman in black coming from being a fallen woman in a society that rejects that status. So like her biggest scare factor essentially is that she's a fallen woman and there's no place for her in society. Yeah, like the fact that she was deemed inappropriate to take care of her child, which yes. in that time was like the sole purpose a woman had. Mm -hmm. And she was a single mother in the first place, I believe. We never hear of any sort of man that mm. she was married to. Right. It's also interesting to note that because Hill wrote this novel in the 1980s, it's part of what many consider a broader gothic horror revival. So this isn't actually Victorian. This is like 1980s. And as we know, based on our History of Women's Fears episodes, if y'all remember those from a while ago, broader social fears are directly reflected in horror trends. Mikkel writes, quote, contemporary British women writers of horror fiction often revisit generic representations in the Gothic tradition that restrict women. And with the aim to refuse disempowerment, these writers commit themselves to revitalize mythic figures. Isn't that fucking awesome? That's so fucking rad. So Mikkel comments on some of these ways the women in black may have been imagined to challenge pre-existing ideas of her Victorian tropes. So she writes, quote, in contrast with Victorian portrayals of fallen women, 
And we might even think back to our conversation in The Barbarian about Bertha. She was kept in an attic. Any of you have ever read or seen movie depictions of Great Expectations? That lady who wears her wedding dress from 20 years ago and just walks around the house all the time. She's so wild and crazy. Anyway, directly contrasting those ideas of fallen women, the woman in black turns into a central character around which the novel revolves, thus acquiring the same status as other classic Gothic archetypes, such as Dracula and Stoker's eponymous novel. In relation to other Victorian representations of fallen women, given her spectral condition, because she's a ghost, the woman in black cannot be destroyed, and therefore she does not perish at the end of the novel. Instead, it is rather inferred that her ghostly and infamous existence will perpetuate in time. The woman in black is thus mostly characterized as a vindictive fallen woman who is symbolically brought back to life to take revenge for all the wrongs that other Victorian fallen women were made to bear in the past. In this respect, Hill's novel can be approached as a feminist reinterpretation of the Victorian myth of the fallen woman, which not only amalgamates gothic my themes with which Victorian fallen women were portrayed, but also turns into a truly gothic archetype. The woman in black thus arises to haunt us back and vindicate herself for all those fallen women whose voices were silenced in Victorian times. Slay. Isn't I love that. that. Cool. That's amazing. I love that. I have a little bit more, a little bit more essay to come. And then we have time to talk because I barely scratched the surface of these very long scholarly articles. So Robin Roberts, in his 2014 article, Gender, Adaption, and Authorship, Three Decades of the Woman in Black, also focuses on Hill's contribution to a gothic resurgence and how it challenges gothic tropes and even offers a critique of motherhood. Quote, Susan Hill's novel, The Woman in Black, is a radical example of women's gothic horror. It is a popular ghost story that has been successfully adapted for the London stage. In addition, it offers a social critique of motherhood and contemporary rhetoric surrounding the family. The contention is that Hill's novel mediates women's anxieties about motherhood and autonomy during the early 1980s, when the institution of family in Britain was an ideological battleground. Set primarily during the 1860s, The Woman in Black exposes Victorian hypocrisy toward the unmarried mother and indirectly probes the quasi-Victorian values promulgated in the 1980s during the first term of a conservative right-wing government. So both Mikkel and Roberts assert the woman in black came from a restrictive social atmosphere in the 1980s that led to Hill's reimagination of Victorian tropes, which leads me to think about the climate of 2012 when this movie was released to the public. According to Wikipedia, Britain's prime minister from 2010 to 2016 was David Cameron, who was indeed conservative. And I'm not super familiar with what was actually happening under his leadership, but it seems like this movie being released in 2012 was no accident if folks were feeling threatened by conservative or restrictive ideologies. It also makes me so curious as to what deemed Jeanette unfit to be a mother, right? Because if she was a single mother, that's already like a strike against her. But was she parenting her kid with more liberal ideologies or more, you know, free thinking ideologies and that deemed her to be unfit if she didn't have a husband with her? What was it that took Nathaniel away from her? And also under the idea that Nathaniel died under more conservative parentship. 
I mean, obviously it was an accident, but if we're looking at this ideologically or metaphorically, what is it that killed Nathaniel? And why is it that Jeanette took such extreme matters to get Alice back in terms of revenge? Like why that was so significant? So it makes me wonder like what it was that really brought them to that contention and how quote unquote crazy Jeanette is supposed to be. That's a really good point about like if we're looking at this as far as maybe liberal versus quote unquote conservative, Nathaniel does die within what would be defined as the perfect household, like good income, gorgeous house, two parent household, and he dies. But from what I understood about the book, which I never read, I tried to get a feel for it based on some articles I was reading. There is mention that Jeanette was sick with some undisclosed sickness, which again is very Victorian. But also, it could have been something as simple as Jeanette being a single mother. Maybe she looked at her sister and her brother-in-law as maybe an environment that would be better for her son to grow up in. Kind of going back to your question, like, who deemed her unfit? Was it herself? Did her sister and brother-in-law maybe peer pressure her into giving up her son? Was there some kind of doctor involved? Did her son ever live with her? Like, did she ever get to be with Nathaniel as his mother? Or was it an adoption that was settled at birth? I don't know. There are a lot of these really vague questions. I mean, it's clear that Jeanette blames Alice for taking her son away from her. So there at least was some level of care and exposure that was then restricted or was then denied. If Jeanette's influence is for other children to kill themselves (sighs) out of spite, like, obviously, there is some concept there. Or does she think that she's helping them? I don't know. That is a good point. Because when we see her looking on in the afterlife, she is looking on to Arthur and his son being reunited with their mother. And that's the ideal. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, what does she think she's doing? Is she vindicating herself by making these big decisions for where these kids end up? Maybe a decision that she didn't get to make with her son? Is it more about that and less about killing the child? Is it more about maybe relocating them? At least that's something that the movie portrays. I don't think the book ends with a reuniting going on in the afterlife. I don't think that that is the case, but maybe that's something that the movie adds to be more optimistic. I'm not sure. Yeah, I just can't tell if the movie wants us to look more into Jeanette's character or if we're supposed to, on its face, accept that Jeanette's crazy. Well, that leads me to my closing questions then. Do you think that the movie successfully showcases some of the feminist themes that we mentioned? I think it almost upholds a lot of like anti-feminist themes in the sense that a boy is meant to be with his mother Mm. or a child is meant to be with their mother and all of this kind of stuff. And when denied that chance, the child is to suffer, Joseph dies, or the mother is to go hysterical, quote unquote, Mm. Jeanette in that sense. So Mm -hmm. it's almost upholding a lot of this is what a woman is for. But at the same time, the fact that Jeanette is able to take on this vengeful spirit, like you talked about before, she's able to take this idea of the unoccupied woman or whatever the term was and make it into this powerful entity that's like throwing men around and doing all of this shit, almost doing the opposite of what a woman, quote unquote, is meant to do, like mother these children, kill these children. Mm -hmm. I think that's insidious and sinister in like the coolest way. Yeah. And do you think it holds up as a horror movie after 11 years? It's not like the scariest thing I've ever seen. I think it works as a period piece. And I think it's more compelling as a period piece because if you're taking into consideration the norms of that time, it makes more sense. 
I feel like looking at it through this 2023 lens, it leaves a little more to be desired in terms of quality of the scares or the integrity of the motivations. But I can see why at its time, especially when you were talking about the state of the British government at the time, how it could have been a lot more compelling and a lot more of a splash. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I didn't realize that this was based on a novel, first of all, and having perused some of these sources that speak so highly of the messaging of the novel, it gives me the impression that the movie did miss some opportunities. I feel like, you know, for being a movie called The Woman in Black, we really don't get a lot of time with The Woman in Black. I mean, it still could be a nod to the influence that this figure has on this town, the society. She is always there, even if she's not in frame, the movie is named after her. I still feel like we could have gotten more from her characterization and seen her more as something other than what other people were talking about. And you have to think that this story is being framed by Arthur, the idea that a man is always writing a woman's story Mm. and that history is always written by men and the idea that no matter how he tells the story, even though he's dead now, (laughs) that it's coming from his perspective and in his viewpoint and that's never going to be the truth of what a woman experiences. That just reminded me... In the original novel, I remember this because this is very similar to the novella Turning of the Screw. This book is framed, like you said, from Arthur's perspective as a story being told around the fire to his stepchildren at Christmas time. So he very much survives in the novel and it looks like goes on to have a whole life and then goes back to tell this story. That's The Woman in Black from 2012. Yeah, so this was Elise's birthday piece. A nice little historical moment. It was a lot more scary than I wanted it to be. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going with another 90s slasher thriller into next week that we're going to have a lot of fun with. Yes, and this is a 90s slasher thriller that was requested many months ago for a birthday of a listener of ours. And we will keep our word and we're excited to do that next week. If you want to get in touch with us, also make requests like some of our listeners like to do. Definitely follow us on Instagram. We have polls. Sometimes we take requests on Instagram story polls, things like that. Find us at The Horrors Podcast. You can also email us directly at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.